to another Godcast from Whosoever, an online magazine for gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender Christians. I'm Candace Shalou-Hodge, the founder and editor of Whosoever. Thank you for joining us. Presbyterian minister Reverend Dr. Janie Spar has been acquitted by the church's highest court of charges over her performance of same-gender weddings. Find out why the ruling is a mix of good news and bad news. Would Jesus discriminate? This is the question Reverend Dr. Cindy Love is asking in her new book, and it's spurring a worldwide movement. And Anthony Venn Brown had a great career in the Assemblies of God Church, but there is only one problem. He's gay. The second edition of his autobiography, A Life of Unlearning, has been published in details his 22-year your journey to self-acceptance. We'll hear from all of these folks in this Godcast. But first, don't forget to head over to Amazon.com and pre-order my new book, Bulletproof Faith, The Spiritual Survival Guide for Gay and Lesbian Christians. It will be published in September by Josie Bass. You can go over to Amazon and search for the title, Bulletproof Faith, and the book will pop right up. I'll be planning book signings and other appearances later this year. If you're interested in having me come to your church to speak or sign books, you can contact me by email at editor at whosoever.org. I'm already already starting to book dates in September and October, so please let me know if you'd like me to come to your area. I look forward to meeting as many folks around the country as possible and spreading the good news of God's unconditional love for all of us. The highest court of the Presbyterian Church USA has reversed a two-year-old decision by the church's synod to censure Reverend Dr. Janie Spar for her role in marrying same-gender couples. The ruling, handed down on April 29th in Louisville, Kentucky, clears Spar, who had been brought up on charges after marrying two lesbian couples back in 2004 in California. However, the ruling said Spar had been charged with, quote, doing that which by definition cannot be done, unquote, namely marry gay and lesbian couples. In other words, the court said the ceremonies Spar did are not marriages, so they would not violate church law. Spar called the decision bittersweet. I appreciate that the high court set aside the ruling of punishment by the Senate Permanent Judicial Commission and essentially came to the Presbytery's decision, which was to confirm my ministry. On the other hand, in reading the decision, it essentially said that my censure, that I could not be censured because these were not marriages. And for me, that is extremely painful. So essentially, we are separate and unequal. That is, we can do blessings and unions, but we cannot call them marriages. And for me, they're all marriages. Spar's attorney, Sarah Taylor, accused the General Assembly Permanent Judicial Committee, or the GAPJC, of judicial activism because it held that Presbyterian ministers may not, quote, state, imply, or represent that a same-sex ceremony is a marriage, unquote, affirming the church's constitutional definition of marriage as a contract between a man and a woman. For them to say, you know, that marriage, it doesn't fit the definition of marriage, you know, that's understandable. The definition says it's between a man and a woman. But the definition doesn't restrict it. It doesn't say it only can be between a man and a woman. In fact, the church has voted on this issue four times in the last few years. And every time an attempt to say it's only between a man and a woman has gotten rebuffed. So the governing body will not do what this GAPJC 
tried to do, and I think that's really significant. Taylor said she expects that somewhere down the line, this ruling will be held to be inconsistent by the larger church body and does not in itself set a standard on what constitutes marriage according to church policy. Spar said despite the mixed ruling, she hopes the church can still be a place of support for gay and lesbian people. We continue then to forge ahead to invite the church to be the place of hospitality and welcome. I always say, you know, where else would we want people, you know, couples need support. Stuff happens. Life happens. And so we've got families and friends, and wouldn't it be wonderful for the church to be that place of welcome? And there are Presbyterian churches across the country who are very supportive of us. I think, you know, they're more like churches, we call them, and mm-hmm. in other denominations, they're open and affirming or welcoming, all these different names and so on. I believe that it is the church that is on trial mm-hmm. and not me. The, the church must open its doors to its own children, to its own family. That's our job. That's, that's what the church could be doing and uh, we invite them to do it. Spar had been acquitted of the charges by the Redwoods Presbytery Permanent Judicial Commission in California after being charged in 2004. That historic decision was appealed and sent to the next highest church court, the Senate Permanent Judicial Commission, which ruled against the Redwoods Presbytery's affirmation of Janie's ministry. With this fresh acquittal, the 65-year-old minister says she'll carry on her work. Right now, I'm meeting with six couples, three same gender and three heterosexual. And, I mean, it, it, you know, it's my great honor to do these marriages. And so for me, it, it's to continue. Spar came out as a lesbian in 1978 and has been a Presbyterian minister for more than 30 years. The Presbyterian Church does not allow openly gay or lesbian members to serve as ministers. Spar, however, has been allowed to keep her position, but since 1991 has been prohibited from leading an individual church. She has worked for two churches since then as a lesbian evangelist and director of That All May Freely Serve, the group lobbying for ordination for gay and lesbian Presbyterians. Reverend Dr. Cindy Love is asking one simple question with her new book, Would Jesus Discriminate? While the question may be simple and provocative, the process Reverend Love, who is the executive director of the Metropolitan Community Churches Worldwide, used to get that question is complex and grows out of her background in corporate marketing. Before becoming a minister, Reverend Love worked for the Toro Company, where she became interested in what's called consumer adoption. Now that studies how long it takes for the largest mass of consumers to adopt that concept. By looking at the steps needed for adoption and the barriers that might come up, researchers hope to find out how to persuade consumers to adopt new products earlier, helping companies make profits earlier on new innovations. Reverend Love took that concept and began to study how it applied to social networking, essentially working on how to speed the acceptance and integration of outcast groups like gays and lesbians within the larger society. This, she told me in a recent interview, is the basis for her book and the Would Jesus Discriminate campaign that is taking hold in the Metropolitan Community Church. After I became a minister, um And I looked at the challenges that lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, intersex people face worldwide in two particular areas, in religious institutions and governmental institutions, increasing their level of acceptance or affirmation of those individuals. I started looking at how could we apply that theory 
to increasing the rate of acceptance. Hmm. And uh, so <laughs> the bottom line is when I first wrote the first paper about it, uh, everyone who read it rejected it. <laughs> so this is crazy, and people are not going to accept or affirm gay people. Uh, that, that was really the most frequent response. And even people in our own community, in the lesbian and gay community, uh, objected to some of the terminology that I presented that I said we would have to use in order to gain greater levels of adoption. Uh, for example, with fundamentalist evangelical people, of whom there are 100 million in the United States alone, mm -hmm. you'd have to be willing to use the word Jesus and the word repent. Ah. Or you would never bridge, if you will, the conversation with them because those are two words that are common to their experience. Mm -hmm. And we seem okay. to have problems saying repent and sin and things like yes. that. Yes. <laughs> but the facts are, if you don't use someone's language, yeah. um, you know, if you go back to the example of groovy, mm -hmm. okay, how did people figure out that groovy meant cool? Yeah. All right? Well, because when people use the language cool, groovy, people understood immediately, oh, okay, this is something I already get. Mm -hmm. um, and so you have to have the language set, they call it a lexicon in the research, to help people bridge from their first awareness of an idea to gaining information about the idea to trying it out, you know, the first time we said groovy, do you remember feeling a little nervous? <laughs> yeah, a little weird. <laughs> <laughs> a little weird, okay. Um, to uh, then, after having tried it out, then adopting that in some way where they're actually willing to share that with another person. It's it's not an internal process there. They're starting to think about how I'm going to do this with someone else. And then actually the ultimate stage of the whole process is, is we incorporate these things and we use them seamlessly, just like we use microwaves and the word groovy. Mm -hmm. So um, after doing all that research and getting a fair number of rejections from not only the external community but my own, I thought, okay, I have to approach this differently. Mm -hmm. And so I actually backed all the way up and said, what if we used language that people who do not affirm us as lesbian and gay people, what if we used language they're familiar with, but we used it in such a way that more than 90% of all people in North America alone could relate to immediately. Mm -hmm. And so I said, okay, so here's the test of that. Was Jesus a man of peace or a man of war? More than 90% of the people in the United States and in North America immediately would respond, peace. Right. And there are a number of studies about you know what people associate with the name of Jesus. So then I said, okay, what's a second word that would have more than 90% understanding when you say it? And that word was discrimination. Mm. Everybody had something in uh, their lives that they could define as discrimination. There aren't any of us who haven't experienced some kind of exclusion. Right. And so then I worked with a marketing firm and said, I want to combine these two words into a question that no matter where it's asked in North America, 
we have more than 90% consumer identification or attached meaning is what they call it mm -hmm. to the two words Jesus and discriminate. And that's where the question came from. Hmm. We had a very, very high application of people knowing what those two words meant and having an almost visceral, immediate response to the question of, no, he wouldn't. Right. This is not only a book, but there's also a campaign that is uh, some of the MCC churches are doing uh, around Would Jesus Discriminate? Tell us about that. The book details um, the campaign and its, its origin, the first city where we launched it in uh, Indianapolis, mm -hmm follows the campaign to Minneapolis and then a couple of other places. And then, of course, uh, I ended writing the book, and people kept right on, and so now it's it's actually in 38 cities worldwide, including uh, Sydney, Australia, Cape Town, Africa, London. Um, and uh, each each week, somebody else joins. It's, it's become sort of a viral uh, process, which is what we had hoped for. But right. Jesus, if you look at Jesus in terms of his actual interaction with people for the time that he was here to interact once he began his ministry, it's basically three years. Mm -hmm. And so I started studying um, his outreach to people. What specifically did he do that made it possible for him to engage so many people who should have been either openly hostile or disinterested. Mm -hmm. And, of course, some people would say, well, he had the Holy Spirit going for him and God was helping out and, and all those things. Sure. Those, those things are, of course, true. But he also had very, very specific techniques. And if you read the Gospels, just the four Gospels in the Bible and nothing else, and you have kind of a marketing head like I had, you'll, you'll say, oh, look at this, okay? Mm -hmm. What he does is he capitalizes on the unexpected, hmm. and that's what marketers love. You know, they want to surprise you in an ad, right? because if they surprise you, you pay attention. So what does Jesus do everywhere he goes? His outreach is to the people who are least expected, not the expected, in fact, sometimes he doesn't reach out to them all at all, but one of them reaches out to him, um, the leper, uh, for example. Right. And so he capitalizes on the unexpected. The second thing he did, he always gathered a group for a story. And he was a great teller of stories. Everything is, has a visual uh, to it and, a, and an attachment to the familiar. And we know from advertising and marketing theory, that's critical. People relate to the things that are familiar in their own experience. Mm -hmm. If that were not true, weight loss products would not sell in North America. It's <laughs> <laughs> the wife that they do. Very true. <laughs> we all want to lose weight. Oh, my God. Yeah. So, um, you know, he, he capitalized on common experience. He gathered groups together. So it, rarely was it a one-on-one -on -one presentation. There are examples of that, of course, but typically his disciples were engaged in it in some way. They were watching or objecting, in some cases, to what he was doing. <laughs> um, the third thing is this familiarity of language, which we already talked about. Mm -hmm. And then the next thing is, um, at the end of his presentation, if you watch, there's almost always an ask. Mm -hmm. That's what we call it in sales and marketing. Yeah. A call to he, action. 
Yeah, yeah. he posed as the question, you know, um, what do you want to do now? Mm-hmm. Um, how do you want to be? And and really, uh, the most sophisticated salespeople in the world will tell you, well, no wonder he was successful because he tracked right along with our guiding principles. But in the book, what I tried to do was not only look at the life and, if you can forgive the word, technique Mm -hmm. (laughs) of Jesus Christ in his interaction with people, how did he engage a community, and then apply that to this theory about if you're presenting a new idea, which he was, he was presenting something so incredibly radical throwing out the old law, introducing a new covenant, telling people it no matter it didn't matter anymore if you were Jew or Greek or slave or free or male or female, all of you are one. Mm-hmm. These incredibly institutionally defiant statements that he was making. So he's putting this new stuff out there. He's asking people to try it on. Yeah. See what do you think? And if you like these ideas, if you embrace these ideas, then you become part of a community, a broader community of people who are going to operate now not on the basis of exclusion but on the basis of inclusion. Well, to, to appropriate another sort of marketing idea, where do you think we reach the tipping point for inclusion of gay and lesbian people within the whole church? I am so encouraged by two things. First, in the last three years, we have seen major secular organizations within the gay and lesbian community step forward and be willing to talk about the fact that religious bigotry is the basis for discrimination. Mm -hmm. And prior to that time in our community, for the most part, with the exception of uh, kind of radical groups like metropolitan community churches, people didn't want to talk about religion or faith or Jesus, or repent, or any of that stuff. Um, So I'm so encouraged by the fact that they have stepped forward. They have formed councils. They have hired staff. Mm -hmm. They have made investments and have taught themselves, um, really with with great uh, use of, of very, very qualified people, to address this issue more effectively. That's the first thing. The second thing is, I don't know if you heard... um, the uh, speech by uh, Desmond Tutu, but um, he just made a speech for the first time in his life to an all-gay audience. Yeah, I haven't haven't had a chance to read it. Uh, You've got to hear it because, you know, when he says the church must apologize, the church universal must apologize for its treatment of lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and intersex persons. And they are full persons of full dignity and worth, and we have made a terrible mistake. Mm -hmm. That is just huge. I had a dream that when we started Would Jesus Discriminate, that within two years, 100 million people would have at least heard the question one time. Because we know the power of the question. Um, In Indianapolis, as a result of just the four-week exposure that people had to yard signs, bumper stickers, and billboards, there was a 16% positive shift in attitudes of fundamentalist evangelicals towards LGBT people. Wow. So I had a dream, and as you know, in a world of satellite radio and blogs and 
everything we have, getting 100 million people to hear the question the first time is actually not uh, as difficult hmm. as it used to be. Yeah. <laughs> and that if people heard it and began to ask that question internally, I'm not even talking about yet that they've said it to a neighbor or to their pastor or that they've stood up in a town meeting and said mm-hmm. we need to change our, our attitudes. But just ask the question of yourself inside because that's what happened for me. You know, I thought I did not discriminate. Here I am, a member of the most inclusive church that I know of on the planet. Uh-huh. But when I put myself through the drill and said, you, you ask yourself, every person you encounter today, is there any part of you that discriminates against them? Mm-hmm. I found places where I still had vestiges of discrimination. Sure thing. I think we all do if we're honest. About that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've crossed the street. You know, I see an African American male coming my way, or a homeless person. Yeah, I've, I've crossed the street. You know, and I think to myself, what in the heck? <laughs> what am I doing? Why am I doing that? Yeah. Because that is an internalized, socialized response. Mm-hmm. And the way to change those, this is what we know, because this is what happened at the beginning of the civil rights movement and is still continuing today, mm-hmm. is people will watch their faith leaders. And during that period of time, when people of color who stood up in faith communities for the first time, and then people who were of European descent stood up and stood by them, mm-hmm. then we began to shift. Now, do we have... Is it perfect? Have we fixed it all? Of course not, because we still have generational and institutionalized racism Mm -hmm. in this country and sexism. But the facts are it would be hard to find a church today that would be willing to say people of color are not welcome in our pews. Okay, so that is a huge shift. And when you look at consumer adoption, again, the time frame for that, the theory says that from the first day that Rosa Parks uh, did not do what she was supposed to do on the bus Mm -hmm. to today, we're tracking right along with the level of adoption that consumers make. The, The mass middle has made its adoption. We still have fringes on the two ends. If you if you look at a bell curve, we still have fringes who have not made that, but that is actually normal, and they too will come along later. They call those late bloomers right. in adoption theory. So, so what do you say to people though who might object to to laying on an idea of marketing that, that as gay and lesbian people to gain our acceptance, it's a matter of marketing. How, how do you react to people who say, you know, why why can't we talk about love and this and that? Why do we have to talk about Jesus and repent um, and and marketing? Doesn't that seem a little manipulative? Well, you know, if that would actually probably be the nicest thing that people have said to me about the campaign. <laughs> You know, I, I get a lot of faxes from people who won't sign their names about where they think I should go. Uh-huh. It's, it's not a happy place. <laughs> but uh, what I say to people is I say, look, what I'm attempting to do here is impossible, but I'm attempting it anyway, mm-hmm. and that is to imitate and emulate Jesus Christ as best I can. Yeah. Asking questions, telling stories, 
loving people, seeing the holy in them as I see the holy in me, and hopefully encouraging or inspiring them to ask that question of themselves. And I believe so strongly that on the other side of that question, the answer is Jesus actually would not exclude anyone. For more information on how to get involved with the Would Jesus Discriminate campaign, go to www.jesus.com or call 1-866-HOPE-MCC. Anthony Ben Brown has tried almost everything, from exorcisms to ex-gay ministries to not be gay. Nothing worked. Even though Vin Brown was steeped in religion as a leader in the Assemblies of God and a regular preacher in the megachurches of Australia. His book, A Life of Unlearning, traces his 22-year journey through psychiatric treatment, fasts, and daily struggles with his sexuality. He did what many gay and lesbian people do, marrying and trying to live as a heterosexual. After 16 years of marriage and two daughters, he eventually had to admit the truth, even though it cost him his career and his marriage. Vin Brown is now dedicated to helping others resolve their faith in sexuality conflicts through his coaching practice. I spoke with Vin Brown recently. He said his life changed in 1991. In 1991, I met a guy, and I fell in love with him. Mm. And um, this was the first time that there was any emotion attached to my same-sex attraction instead of hatred. And it was then, Kenneth, I really had to evaluate everything. And I look back at 22 years of fighting daily, exorcisms, gay programs, years of marriage and I had to really be honest in saying nothing has actually changed mm. and, and I cannot live this life of pretend and hypocrisy anymore. Mm. So um, I resigned from the ministry, did a public confession in front of a congregation of 800 people um, and uh, then, you know, totally came out and that's when my life really went bad. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to say, it sounds like you sort of left quote-unquote, the good life, to, uh, to be true to yourself. Yes, but it was interesting because I think now, you know, looking back, you get a lot of insight, and when you've written your autobiography twice, <laughs> <laughs> you get additional insights that I see now, you know, that um, uh, there was such a subconscious self-hatred mm-hmm. um, and a sense of unworthiness that when I came out, I attracted all the wrong people into my life mm. and developed codependent relationships and ended up getting, you know, bashed and it was my partner to steal from me and, and just a whole series of things because I would attract the wrong people because I didn't believe I was worthy. When I left the ministry, there was no concept that I could be gay and be a Christian. The choice was you're heterosexual and go to heaven or you're homosexual and go to hell. So... <laughs> I I honestly had thought I had turned my back on God completely. And um, so I shut down my belief system because I couldn't couldn't resolve anything. I couldn't even think about it. I would have a panic attack if I even began to think about any Mm -hmm. of those spiritual. But surprisingly, (laughs) in 1998, I was doing a personal development course. And in this course, you had to discover what your life purpose was. And as I did this exercise, a word appeared on the page I wasn't expecting. It was the word God. <laughs> and uh, that my life purpose was to bring people closer to God. And, um, you know, this was quite confronting. But I prayed for the first time in eight years. It was like I got born again again. 
And I certainly didn't have any of the answers, but I just knew how real this was for me and had no idea where this was going to take me, whether it was going to take me back to the church or whether I'd have to try and, you know, change to be heterosexual again. But, you know, I just trusted that it would all work out okay, and that's exactly what happened. What were the reactions that you got when you did your confession and you and you came out as a, as a gay man? Um, do you still have any connection at all with your past life? Um, I've reconnected with a number of of um, former friends. Um, that's what I've been trying to do to really build a respectful, you know, intelligent, informed dialogue with people. Um, you know, at what happened, and this was really so hard for me, Candace, that um, every one of my preacher friends actually rejected me. That um, they made no contact with me, no phone calls, no letters, no, nothing, and that was really, really difficult to understand because, you know, I felt that I'd done all the right thing in confessing, you know, and, and trying to make amends. And I actually at that point was trying to get my marriage back together again. But um, I didn't, I just didn't get any support at all. There was no one in my world who thought I, I was doing the right thing, really. Well, as you've moved forward and, and done your own ministry, how have you uh, reached out to other gay and lesbian people who have felt as, as you have felt and perhaps been treated as you've been treated? Well, I, I guess that the primary thing was um, telling my story. I had a strong sense, Candace. I really felt that God told me or spoke to me or you know, impressed upon me, whichever way you want to look at it, that mm -hmm. it was really important for me to tell my story, that it would, uh, just to be completely honest, and um, that it would help lots of people. So when the first edition came out, I was inundated with emails because that story had not been told in Australia mm -hmm. at that point. Um, and so for the first time, all these isolated people all over Australia um, began to email me and say, oh my God, your story is my story. So the book has been the, the, the catalyst, I guess, putting the cork on the bottle um, and uh, then from there, I, I felt that it would be good to set up a network, particularly for gay and lesbian, bisexual, transgender people from Pentecostal and charismatic backgrounds. Because I thought that they had some unique needs that maybe might be a little different to the evangelicals, Catholics or Episcopalians. And I knew there were other groups for them, but I couldn't find anything for Pentecostals or charismatic. So freedom to be has an online forum now of about 400 people, which is growing, and we have chapter meetings in, in um, a couple of the capital cities here in Australia. So it's a growing network, and that's been exciting to see what, what, uh, how that's helped people resolve their issues or their faith and their sexuality. And what are some of the unique issues that uh, charismatics might have over regular vanilla-flavored Protestants or evangelicals? <laughs> <laughs> I think that uh, probably one of the unique things is that the Pentecostal is very much an experiential religion, mm. a, a breed of Christianity. So the conflict that they have afterwards is, you know, well, I, you know, I had all these experiences. I had all these experiences. What do I do with them? Yeah. How do I explain them? How was I fooling myself? Was I deceived? Was I being deceived? So. That experiential thing is very real for them. The other thing, of course, is that they find it difficult sometimes to go into other churches because they're used to a very vibrant style of worship and other, other churches might have a more liturgical um, form of service. So um, even though they might resolve their faith, they may find it hard to fit in somewhere.
What is it like for gay and lesbian people in Australia? Is it accepting there, or are there still challenges that, that Australians face? There are the challenges that you face in the U.S. as well. You know, I keep a pretty close eye on what's happening globally. Um, we have had some great things happen here. Um, I had a meeting with a national executive of the Assemblies of God, all of them who were, you know, my closest friends, and I used to preach in their church. And from that meeting, they have issued a statement on homosexuality, which is a shift. And the shift is that in that statement, they actually acknowledge that there is a difference between orientation and behaviour. The pastor of Hillsong Church um, has just issued a statement on his website stating that, um, you know, that they have a biblical position on homosexuality and on morality in general. Mm -hmm. But um, the statement does say that, you know, this is an issue that the church is facing worldwide and, and we don't have all the answers. Wow. You know, I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> These are some major, major things, you know. And, of course, some people within the GLBT community you know, I react because they read the first part that says, you know, well, this is our traditional stand. But I look at the thing that says we don't have all the answers. Right, yeah, because usually they say, well, we do, and here they are. <laughs> uh, that's right. Yeah, the Bible says this, and uh, yeah, so you have to change. So, right. So um, it's interesting what's happening here. And, and, of course, the big thing, the big thing that's just happened is that through my connection with a Baptist minister here in Sydney, um, and, and our dialogue that we created, he really felt that he wanted to get 100 ministers to march in the Sydney Gay and Lesbian Mardi Gras Parade. What happened was 100 ministers signed an apology to the GLBT community. Wow. And 35 of them marched in the parade. Well, their lives have been transformed. They got such a welcome, a standing ovation as they marched past some of the stands in the parade. And um, I went to an event on Sunday night where they issued awards for the parade, you know, like the, the most funny and the yeah. best dress, etc. And the 100 Revs won the award for the most outstanding political comment. Wow, that is fabulous. Many of the ordained clergy, even here in the United States, uh, personally don't have a problem with homosexuality, are actually quite accepting of gay and lesbian people, but they're, they're hesitant to to step out and be seen or, or say things to their congregations for fear of losing their jobs or, you know, losing their own livelihoods. So they support gay and lesbian people as best they can, but they won't be doing it, you know, in their pulpits. So they remain silent. So have you seen that sort of a trend there? Do you, do you meet some reverends who, who are supportive but, but are not going to come out in March? Well, it's funny you should say that because the lead-up, of course, to the 100 Revs marching in the Mardi Gras parade here, um, there was... Uh, what would happen is someone would sign the apology, then their name would disappear. Mm. Mm. <laughs> or as soon as denominational heads, um, you know, and hierarchies heard of anyone doing that, their livelihoods were threatened. Yeah. And some of them had to pull out. And that's why we didn't actually have 100 March, only 35 March, um, some of them knew that if they did that, they, they would lose their jobs. Um, so, and there's still the threat of that happening for some of those which signed the apology. But, you know, what, what's, what has happened, of course, is, you know, that we won't be going back. Every one of these steps, as you know, you've been in this much longer than I have, 
every one of these steps is a step forward and, and we don't go backwards. For more information on Anthony Venn Brown, visit his website at www.anthonyvennbrown.com. That's Anthony V-E-N-N Brown.com. You can also visit www.freedomtobe.org. That's freedom, the number two, and then be.org. That's a site dedicated to supporting GOBT people who have come from Pentecostal and charismatic backgrounds. for joining us for another Whosoever Magazine Godcast. We'd love to hear your feedback. You can tell us your thoughts, comments, or suggestions by writing to us. Our email address is godcast at whosoever.org, or you can leave comments at our blog at whosoeverpods.blogspot.com. The theme music for our program has been graciously provided by Adam Kiraly. Other music included samples from Heavy Mellow, Rhonda Lawrence, and John Williams, all available on magnitude.com. If you'd like to join the Whosoever community, we have many online groups that you can join for fun and support. You can find Whosoeverans in your area when you join our Rainbow Fish regional groups. To find out more, go to whosoever.org slash rainbowfish. And if you're enjoying our podcast, please consider making a monetary donation to our ministry. It does take time and money to produce and broadcast this program and, of course, to keep our ministry on the web, where we've been a valuable resource to our community for about 12 years now. You can donate by credit card by going to our website at whosoever.org slash donate. Thanks again for joining us for Whosoever's latest Godcast. We hope you'll join us again, and until then, may God richly bless you.